0: for Safeguarding America on 93.5-1590-WAKR with Ray Horner and Paul Violas. Each Saturday morning, Ray and Paul present the facts on security and safety from Akron and beyond. To ask or text a question, the number is 330-370-1590. Now, Safeguarding America with Ray Horner and Paul Violas. 93.5-1590-WAKR. Good morning to you, seven minutes after 10 o'clock. And welcome to another edition of Safeguarding America. I'm Bray Horner. He is Paul Violas with the Viola Group. He is the president, CEO, and joins us each and every Saturday. He's the host. I try to chime in with the show and get some questions and get the text messages and emails out. And that's where we are going to go this week. And I'll bring in Paul Kind of an open forum for you because each and every week we get emails, we get text questions really from around the globe of people listening to the show with their concerns, specific things in regards to to safety and security. And Paul has put a majority of these together. I have some as well who have emailed me at the radio station, and we're going to present those questions to you because I imagine these questions are not just of those. They are also on your mind, and we're going to address that. Also, since it's open forum, we welcome your calls and text messages as well with us this morning, 330-370-1590, and of course, our text line is open for you at three three zero three seven zero fifteen ninety. 370 1590 So let's bring in Mr. Violis. Good morning, Paul.
1: Hey, good morning, Ray. How was your week? It was
0: uh, busy, to say the least, and continues this evening. I'm going to be out at uh, Goodyear Theater with uh, Gordon Lightfoot this evening for a concert. My son moved back from All Kent right. State. It's It's been hectic, but uh, looking forward to this show with you today.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it was a good week, and I'm sure it's great to have your son back. Yeah. You know, i got to tell you, when we decided to do this, as far as a full audience show, um, I thought it was a really good idea at the time, but when, when, when I started to, to see the feedback that we got and the, just the amount of emails that came in at, at, at info at Violas, that's why I pinged you back and I said, Ray, you're on to something here. So for everyone to, to kind of put your arms around this right now, What we did was we sent out a message on social media, and uh, thanks to to everybody that that, that kind of jumped in on that. And the question was, what's keeping you up at night, right? Because think about it. I don't care where you live, how much money you have, color of your skin, your religious preference, sexual preference. It makes no difference. There's a whole bunch of stuff keeping us up at night. So we threw the question out there, right, Ray? And I I like the question. So what's keeping you up at night? Over 131 responses <laughs> as of this as of this morning. Mm-hmm. So what I want to say is that everyone that wrote in. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to get to everyone's questions. What we did, and this you know, this is great science to this, but what we did was we took the categories and we tried to cover every category as many as we could, because there were, as you said, Ray, there were a lot of people that wrote in about the same thing, mm-hmm. so. We tried to lump those as much as we could together. We are not going to cover everyone today. We're going to have to do this again to cover everybody's questions. If you like this as an audience and you want to be part of the content development of the show, hey, all you have to do is write in, info at Violas. You can send it to PV at Violas. You can send it to Ray's email. You can send it to the station. Write us on social media. It doesn't make a difference. The key part about this is to make sure that we're validating Safeguarding America. And the only way we can validate content is to make sure that we embrace what it is that's actually keeping you up at night. So we know we're covering the things, right, Ray, that we want to cover.
0: And and I can say this, and and Paul and I have a relationship for about the last three or four years on the radio station here with his uh, previous work and such. And I have thrown a ton of subjects at Paul in regards to safety and security, everything from national matters to backyard matters. And each and every one of them, he has been spot on because he's kind of been there, done that in the world of law enforcement. So don't hesitate with anything that is on your mind in regards to safety and security. So, so Paul, well, that said, if you don't mind, let's, let's jump into it. We have Angela from New Jersey who sent us in an email and it says, because of my dad's health, I have to admit him to a nursing home, and it's killing me. How do I check them out to make sure he's okay?
1: i got to tell you. So, Ange, if you listen right now, let me tell you something. Um, I can speak from experience because we had to, uh, unfortunately, it was the worst decision that I've ever had to make in my life. It was the most difficult decision I ever had to make in my life. The The man that I will always love the most in this world, my dad, we had to do something very similar, only because of his health, and it crushed me. So I, I do know what you're talking about, and and I will tell you, Angela, that you are not alone, because we had 27 other people that wrote in on the same subject. Mm. So you know what, you you are spot on with with reference to your question, and it's an excellent question. So let me address it with to to reiterate: How do you vet a nursing home, a long tear, a long term care facility? How do you vet them? So for those of us that have been through this, then we we kind of understand. I can tell you from personal and an investigative standpoint, the very first thing that there's a list, and I'll tell you real quick, the the very first thing that you want to make sure you do is you want to sit down with the manager, the general manager, the operations person that is in charge of hiring, discipline, the selection process in its totality, as well as the policy and procedures as far as care goes. Because what you want to go through are you want to ask spe- specific questions on, one, has your staff had problems with respect to, one, slow responses to calls? If your dad is in a room and he's hitting a button and no one's coming, that's a problem. So you want to find out what that response is to them. Two, poor food quality. Poor food quality is way up on the top of the list as far as the problems in nursing homes and long-term care facilities um it just is so and there are those like any other profession no one's created not everyone's created equal there are great facilities and there are ones that are not great so that's one of the questions staffing issues to me is the biggest thing and that comes down to the background investigation that's conducted and what i will say is that if you are interested in because it's a very long menu if you're interested in that email me anybody listening email me at pv i'll send you the menu you put in front of that hospital administrator that that nursing home administrator and say are you doing these kind of backgrounds because if they're not then you're going to be walking into a problem i can tell you that right now make sure that they are thoroughly vetted those are things right off the top but those are the top three because as you start breaking this thing down one of the things you want to make sure of is that also There's good social interaction with your dad. You want to make sure that he's not being disrupted in his sleep unnecessarily. And you want to make sure the biggest part is, Angela, they know you're going to be coming. Because if they do, his treatment is going to be incredibly different. So find a location that's close to the family so frequent visits will be a reality. I hope that helps,
0: Angela. COVID has really complicated these matters as well oh, God, as yeah. far as visitation and such. Now, this is something also as an update on this, and I urge Angela and others to check out in their state. And Angela sent us the uh, email from New Jersey. But in Ohio, they now have passed regulations where you're allowed to go to these facilities and install as long as it's okay, and they, they passed the ordinance so it will be, to install cameras into the rooms, which to me is a big step when you talk about elder care. So I urge anyone who sent in that question to go down that road in your state to see if you're eligible to install a camera inside that
1: room. That's great. And I got to tell you, I just got, I just got in from my brother, Joe in New York, who just wrote in Joe Joe, I appreciate this. And, and my Joe is one of my closest, dearest friends my whole life, has over 40 years of experience in this type of facility. So if there is a true subject matter expert, it's it's who's writing in right now. And Joe writes, and, and Angela listens to you and everybody else, Joe writes, request to see all the floors, not just the ones they want to show you. Joe, I would have never thought of that. That's great. Also, he writes, do you smell anything such as urine when you are visiting the floors? Very important. And You know what? It's a great question. I I should have said that. But, Joe, you're right. I remember running into that issue with respect to my dad. And also, Jojo writes, check the latest five Department of Health surveys. So, Joe, I appreciate that. Excellent as always. And, Angela, please take that down to anybody else. That's great information.
0: Kind of what you were saying, too, Paul, and the senses, the eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. You talked about the food. Joe just mentioned your nose. Use your senses to make sure this place has them all covered for your loved one that's going to go into the facility, for sure.
1: All right, let's no go. No question. I, and I and I can tell you, Ray, every single person inside the facility my dad was in knew I was coming and they yeah. knew I was watching. Mhm. Every a big single one. one. May, you know, yeah, no question. All well, right, what do we got
0: next? Okay, Charlotte from Louisiana sent this one in. Paul and you and I have touched on this, but I think it's important that we get this out. Um, My fourth-grade son is being bullied, both at school and on social media. He doesn't want me to say anything for fear that it will get worse. Paul, what do I do?
1: Charlotte, you are not alone. Uh, Moms and dads across the United States face this all the time. In fact, conclusive research has shown uh, from the Department of Justice that one in three one in three in the USA, they have been bullied at school. So this is this is a magnanimous problem. Over three thousand children attempt suicide every day, Charlotte. I'm going to say that again. Every over three thousand children attempt suicide every day. Not all because of bullying, but the preponderance, clearly, the vast majority, because of that. So I, I say that as a preamble, Charlotte, to to, to the answer to answer your question. And the reason I say that is because the one thing that your son does not want is att- more attention on him. He's afraid of what they, who they are, what they may do, what they may say. And I get that because that's how kids are going to respond. What I'm going to say to you is get involved. And I know this is difficult to hear. If you, you, Now that you know he's being bullied, let me tell you exactly what you do. You go to the source. You go immediately to the principal. Now, if you don't want to and you want to go to the kid's family, that's fine. Typically, that does not provide fruitful results because a lot of the parents of these kids that are bullies, guess where they got it from? So they're probably not going to be the most receptive ear. You go to the principal, depending on what's happened, especially if it's also included cyber, then you go to the police. And you make sure, you make sure that they understand this is criminal. You are not going to tolerate it. End of story. Is it going to be a difficult transition with you, Son? Yes. No question about it. I get it. I understand it. But what I, what I will tell you is you may very well save his life. This how serious this is because this runs deep. So I, I beseech you, get involved. Get the school involved, and if need be, get the police involved. I'm not going to say just recently my family's had to deal with that on a collateral issue, and... Um, I gotta tell you that, you know, it was handled this way and the problem w- went away expeditiously. So my, that's Charlotte. I hope that helps.
0: And Charlotte, you're certainly not the only one. Paul and I have received so many questions in regards to this and this social media fear is very real. Great question with us. Uh, Paul, I received an email this week from one of our listeners in Akron, Dennis, and Dennis said, he, he said, Ray, Paul, I really enjoyed the gun violence episodes the last three weeks. Found them really educational. He said, but one subject I wanted to ask that I didn't hear you guys address is why do we sell military-like weapons to the public? It seems like they're used in a lot of these shootings. Paul?
1: That's a great question, Dennis, and I'm going to tell you, I am all for the right to bear arms. I am a a firm believer in that constitutional amendment, in the entire Constitution for a fact. But, you know, I also believe, you know, in in something my mom used to say in Greek, which means everything in moderation. Uh, Do I see the need for certain types of apparatus that's legally sold today that can turn, You know a a normal weapon into a rapid fire automatic weapon no i don't see the need for that now there we draw the line of do i have a constitutional right yes you do have a constitutional right we also have to look at the totality of what the constitution was created for and that was to safeguard america it was to protect the citizens of the united states and that means that sometimes We have to reevaluate the culture of this country, which has changed dramatically since we instituted that amendment to the Constitution. And I think that we have to look at the totality of violence in our society today. I'm not in favor. I am not in favor. We look at what and and we can look at the bump stock, for example, but I'm not going to get into that too deep. But what I will say is when we look at a case like Las Vegas and I covered that shooting, you're looking you're looking at a guy. That was picking people off like, like fish in a barrel. So, yes, I do think that we need to reevaluate what's actually being sold because clearly no one's going deer hunting with an automatic weapon. So I think we need to reevaluate what is and what isn't. Uh, I would agree with that. Dennis.
0: Boy, that's a great answer, Paul. Well done. Paul Biolas, i Bray Horner at Safeguarding America. Paul, here's another one sent in from Clifford in Cleveland. It says, guys, while I was driving last week and listening to the show, I didn't get a chance to call or text in. So can you explain why you think we should have to tell a police officer we have a gun in the car?
1: Clifford, that's a really good question. And, and if I didn't answer that completely the last time, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that means I didn't I didn't do what I should have done. <laughs> and I'm glad you said that. So let me be very specific about that. There are two parts about a traffic stop that I'm going to address right now. One, I have disagreed with since I was the commander of a state police academy. And that is that police, unfortunately, police aren't obligated to tell you why they pulled you over. A lot of people don't know that. I disagree with that, especially in our society today. And I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm going to get to the gun issue. But I have to address one before the other. Our culture in our society has changed magnanimously. I remember the first time I got pulled over. It was on the Clearview Expressway in Queens. And I was a 17-year-old kid, you know, blazing far in, 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 with speeds in far in excess of the legal limit. There's no question about that. He had every right to pull me over. When this guy got out of the car, it looked like he was never stopping to get out of the car. He had the biggest head I've ever seen in my life. And he stuck his head in my window and said, where's the fire? I was terrified. I, ah, I couldn't even speak. It's a different culture in 1977 at that point than we are today. I think that, you know, and I have taught cops this over the years, it's important to tell somebody why they were stopped. A lot of cops really just don't do that. What that that does in our society today is it enhances inherent conflict in the communication. And what that does is it escalates to a point where force is going to be used when it should never have been used. It's a very simple thing to tell somebody why you have detained them. So the reason I use that as the preamble is because your question was on why is it important to tell a cop that you've got a gun in the car. Because what we teach police, first and foremost, is officer safety comes first. If you're not safe and something happens to you, you can't protect the public. The best thing to do if you have a gun in the car is to tell the cop, yes, I do have a gun in the car. Don't try to, you know, conceal it. Tell him you got a gun in the car. That's for your safety. That's for his safety. He knows how to handle things a little bit differently as opposed to coming across it in an adverse manner. So that's why it's very important because not just for your safety but for the cop's safety and to de-escalate a level of conflict that simply you know, we shouldn't have to go to.
0: Yeah, Paul, I'm just going to say I've obviously never been in those, sho- those shoes but if you come forward and say I have a gun in the vehicle, does that automatically, for the officer, de-escalate a little bit of the tension or a little bit of stress that the officer is feeling?
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, and, and granted, not all cops are created equal. And I mean, you, and I hope everyone understands my point here is you, you know that I've been and will always be an advocate to, for our police and spent my career in law enforcement. But not all cops are created equal. And there are, you know, there's plenty of them out there that shouldn't be cops. And I'll say that right now. There are ones that abuse their right to pull people over. There are ones that don't do the right thing. And it's those few that create hardship for the many. If you step up and you at least volunteer that, if you're dealing with a good cop at that point, and the vast majority are, then you're going to de-escalate conflict because you're showing concern for that moment. And that ladies and gentlemen, is something you can control at a traffic stop.
0: Paul, one of the emails that I got, and I thought it was really interesting, and I wanted to throw it your way, was from one of our listeners in Akron by the name of Ted, and Ted said, I enjoy the show every Saturday morning, and I've heard you guys talk about Paul being boots on the ground during 9-11. And he said, Paul, what was that like? I've never had an opportunity to hear firsthand what was that like on the ground that day? So uh, you don't have to go on in great detail, Paul, because I imagine it's pretty emotional. But maybe hit that subject for Ted and all of us, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, Ted, you just got me, man. I got to tell you, that's a that's a serious rewind button. But I, I will tell you what was it like. Um, wow. I, it, the one thing I remember more than anything else was the smell. Was the smell of burning flesh? Um, I still, I still have nightmares on that one. Um, you know, I, I ran a couple of teams there, uh, and we were responsible for securing iconic sites in New York that were potentially targets. And going to going downtown and and seeing you know the military and military vehicles and just smoke everywhere and just the amount of things that were being discovered you know uh was just crazy but then by the same token what sticks out in my head was the incredible sense of patriotism that resonated through everybody the love of our country the unity the how it brought people together i can tell you that there were no colors there was no color of skin or language or ethnicity difference at that point. We were Americans and we were going to get revenge. And that was what resonated on 9-11. And every day, every day that we worked together, that we were down there, I mean, the optics behind it. I know there's a lot of pictures. There's a million of them at this point. None of it do it justice. Um, none none of it. None of it. But uh, yeah. All right, Ted, you got me on that one, man. That's that's, uh, that's, that's a powerful emotional. question, but that—that's—that's. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I remember the really bad, uh, but I also remember the really good.
0: Paul Violas, Ray Horner is safeguarding America. Paul, let's go to Sal and Teresa, Long Island, New York, who sent us in this email, and it says, "My daughter is a 19-year-old sophomore in college, and just emailed us, making wanting to know about studying abroad in Europe this coming fall, with everything going on, Paul." Is this a safe move, and should we let her go?
1: All right. So I first have to say, Ray, as an Italian American, if you you can't tell me that Sal and Teresa are not Italian <laughs> names like that, I, I would I'll bet you right now. Hey, Sal, does anybody call you Sally? Hey, Sally, <laughs> we're, I mean, we're going over there for a sausage I sandwich. I think. Oh my God, I love it. So Sal Teresa, um, with everything going on, let's let's break that question down one where in europe so if you want i'm more than happy to help you with this because there's a lot of specificity that comes with it email me at pv at violas.com with the itinerary is i'll vet it for you at no charge and i'll send it back to you but the, to answer the question about vetting studying abroad number one it's uh, examining the location itself one of the things that we learned over the years past is that there's no place that you can check the box and say that it's constantly safe so you have to investigate the location not just the country but the local venue where are they going to be staying who are they going to be staying with what level of security is there and then a brief risk assessment on the area risk of terrorism what is the health conditions right there and what's pending and what's looming over that particular area last but not least is you want to vet their transportation From wheels down in country to wheels up, how are they getting around? In Europe, a lot of this is by train. That can be problematic depending on the country that they're going to and the rail service that they're going to use, all of which can be vetted. Last but not least, if they are going to be staying, Sal, if you're going to let your daughter, your 19-year-old daughter, if you are going to let her go, you better know who she's staying with. And do not trust the school. Yes, I know all people from academia right now are cringing. I'm telling you, do not rely on the college or university's risk management program to thoroughly vet this trip. You need to do it yourself. Brief case scenario, we did a case for a client not too long ago, very, very prominent person in the Jewish American community in New York. Their 19-year-old daughter was going to be studying abroad abroad We did a background on the family. It turns out the guy had an alternative identity, and we found it in the deep web, and he was a neo-Nazi. So you imagine how well that went over with this particular family. After the blood came back to the dad's head, they addressed it with the school. So Sal, Teresa, great question. That's the the macro level of of vetting that. Uh, But last but not least, remember pv.violas.com. Send me an email. I'll vet the itinerary for you, give you some peace of mind.
0: Paul, another email question says, and we've addressed this too, but we'll hit it again, and I'll let you go here. With all this hacking going on, what is the best way to protect my computers at home?
1: Okay, so um, let's let's break that down real quick. With respect, this is the simplest thing and the simplest and the, the most direct way to answer that question. You have an open port. You have to have an open port or a gateway from the cable company or from the company that's providing you access to the internet into your home. That open port is the part that gets compromised. The simplest way to protect yourself from as someone sitting outside and compromising your system, the simplest way, is to look for a local vendor. If you don't have one in your area or not sure, email me and we'll find one for you, okay, okay? No cost. We'll find one for you. But you want to find someone to install an encrypted firewall. You know, specifically, you want to look at AES-256 or 256-bit encrypted firewall. It attaches and connects to a very simple device. One side you plug in coming in from the cable line. The other side you plug in to the router dispensing data, metadata, and connectivity throughout the house. And that means, to your ring, you know... or any your, anything that's connecting to Wi-Fi. What that does is it encrypts the signal and protects it coming in and coming out. Last but not least is make sure that you stay away from public email boxes. And and I know that everybody's cringing right now because everybody's on Gmail, everybody's on Yahoo, Hotmail. Here's the analogy. If you are sending anything over email that you don't want other people to see, then get off a public email box. Because all of pub- Gmail, Hotmail, All they are is, like, taking a file cabinet, opening the drawers, putting all your stuff in them, and then leave it open in Penn Station in the middle of, you know, rush hour. And that's pretty much what a public email box is. So, one, you protect the connectivity, and two, you get on a more secure email that you could monitor, which is not expensive anymore, and that will get you where you need to go.
0: We have one more question available, uh, Paul, here before we have to take another break. And this was sent in from Patty from Chicago, Paul. And it says, I like to jog after work at night. Do you have any tips on how I can incorporate safety measures to make me feel more safe?
1: Patty, you really got to do this at night? I mean, that's going to be my answer, okay? And I know, I know because I, I read, really? All right, so listen, if you if you felt, feel compelled to do this, then let me tell you, I'll give you I'll give you some tips. One, the safest and simplest thing for you to do is, and I'm familiar with the, the PD there, um, is Chicago PD has a really good public relations department. I know people are saying, oh, look at all the shootings. They have a good PR department. All you have to do is shoot them an email and ask them what the crime and incident rate, the incident rate is in the path that you're looking to jog. If they're, If that's high, are there alternatives that they recommend? It's a quick call, it's a quick email, so that's number one for your location. If you're gonna go, go in pairs or groups, don't run alone, okay? Uh, Use a familiar area and do not go off the beaten path. Don't, you know, get creative and say, oh, I'd like to kind of run through this area, run through that alley or run up that hill. Stay and keep your course the same. Don't vary routes, avoid secluded areas, it's very specific about that. Avoid secluded areas. Go in a well-lit area. Face oncoming traffic and be alert. Uh, carry your iPhone, your ID, and your keys. Do not leave your house. Do not leave your house and car unlocked. Okay? Seriously, a lot of people do that. Carry your phone, your ID, and your keys. And wear bright clo- colored clothing. I, I, I can't emphasize enough. So many people get hurt and get struck by vehicles at night. Uh, stay in open spaces and if you are be, if you suspect you're being followed, patty like you already know how I felt over this in the beginning but if you suspect you're being followed or if you feel you're being threatened call 911 immediately uh, one of the things and you're gonna hear me mention this later on in the show there's a new device that's out Ch- go to safetychick.com there's a new device that's out uh, that's coming out very shortly. That's the most sophisticated wearable for women that will immediately connect you to nine one one just by pressing the button, and it goes to five or six other people that you know that are your lifeline. So be, go to check out safetycheck dot com and look for that device. I, I highly recommend it. If you feel compelled Pat, to go, you know, jogging at night.
0: To be quite honest, this has been wonderful relating the feedback from our listeners out onto the air. And as Paul opened up the show, so many similar emails from so many of our listeners globally, around the world, around this country, with certain safety and security questions. And Paul did a great job of putting these together, for the most part, for us today. Paul wanted to bring this one up. And this it says, from some loyal fans in Eugene, Oregon, listening to us each and every week, it says, we work in an automotive center And listen to your show each and every week. In several of your shows, you talk about police use of force procedures. Can you explain that in greater detail for us, Paul?
1: You know, I got to... First of all, fellas, thanks for listening. Uh, Ladies, gentlemen, whatever. I just... I think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You know, right? I I do, too. I I think that's pretty... I could picture it now. You know? I could... So... Anyway, maybe we should do a show live from there one day. I would love I that. Uh, but <laughs> I will tell you this. Um, so it's it's a really good question, especially, you know, in today's world. Let me explain this. The, the, the use of force matrix, or otherwise known as the use of force continuum, is how police are trained and governed as to the type of force and the level of force that they can use based on the force presented to them. It starts with... That first level, which is verbal, a verbal command is actually in the use of force matrix. So the verbal command of, you know, sir, please take your hands out of your pockets. Sir, please step away from the vehicle. That's that first line. That is that first line within the use of force matrix. One of the things, and I have always said this, and and guys, and I will reiterate this, is that the most powerful weapon that a cop has is his or her mouth. If you've got good communication skills and you can de-escalate a situation well, then you could limit the amount of force that you have to use. There's no question about that. It's a proven fact. Did it my whole career. There are times you've got to use force. That's what this is for. Then, you know, to, without, you know be, without breaking each component down, when you have to move up to a certain level of force, then it will start with when the officer actually has to restrain you otherwise known as restraining techniques. Officers are taught in what's referred to as defensive tactics, and there is a combination of martial arts and other forms of self-defense, ground fighting, et cetera, of what they can and can't do in certain situations based on the threat presented. I can tell you that uh, I don't see enough of that today. There are restraining techniques that that I used uh, with guys that were much bigger and much stronger that worked beautifully, like a, a knee strike to the peroneal nerve along the side of the leg. One good strike there, I don't care how big you are, you're going to wet your pants. You're going to go down for about 30 to 45 seconds. And it's enough time typically to handcuff you, not in all situations, but in most. So that's that next part. Also, you go to impact weapons. Now, back in the day, right, back in the day, I date myself, but. A nightstick or a PR 24 that escalated to an asp or an expandable baton now a taser that's an impact weapon that's where you have to escalate the force based on the force being presented to you but by the same token you don't need to use deadly force and then the last one is deadly force the thing to remember for everyone to listen is everyone to remember this is that an officer is allowed to use one level higher of force than what is being presented. But the officer, when they come down to deadly physical force, that is up to the state statute. So if we're talking about Ohio, we could be talking about, but right now we're talking about Oregon. In Oregon, and the officer, if the officer feels that they, not just are in imminent fear of death, but if they feel they're in imminent fear of great bodily injury, then they can exercise deadly physical force. So you you need to go to your state and you need to examine to everybody listening what your state calls for. Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: I wanted to follow up on that. You you kind of answered it a little bit there. Paul, does each state train differently, their officers? Because you brought up the word restraint, and we heard about the situation in Minnesota with Chauvin and all that stuff. Does each state train restraint differently or is it universal?
1: No, no, I wish they did and they don't. Uh, Each state has a a board of governance over police training and police standards. Um, And and when I say police, that that goes to, you know, police, it goes to corrections, it goes to probation and parole, uh, all forms of law enforcement. Those standards are the minimum standards. So when we say minimum standards, you can say that the basic academy is required to have 400 hours. That police academy then can, can, exceed that to 800 hours if they want, but they have to meet the minimum. We do not have any correlation from state to state. There are a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of common ground, but there's no federal standard. The use of force matrix is pretty much the only thing that we have that's relatively federal or that that, that states abide by, but there is no continuity with respect to the number of hours trained. More importantly, the number of hours in respective blocks, there's no continuity on how police officers are selected, the selection process, how well they're vetted. There's no continuity to that either. That's state by state, and in many cases, it's agency by agency.
0: And then my final question on this topic, this is a great question. Thanks for the group out there in Eugene, Oregon, sending it in.
1: Yeah, you guys are great.
0: When a police officer comes upon a situation, Paul, is it also universal the first things that come out of their mouth?
1: When you say it's, it's universal, it, it means... The, like, do the they have response? to say,
0: police officer, drop your gun, or police officer, yeah. drop that weapon, or police officer, uh, you know, I guess, uh, is it universal what they must say to address yes. and let people know that there's an officer on the grounds?
1: When humanly possible, when humanly possible, yes. Okay, And, and that's the best way to answer that question. Identifying yourself is critical. Now We're talking about anything from a search warrant over a no-knock search warrant to any situation. A lot of plainclothes cops out there. You will also find that when you've got plainclothes cops that are responding to a situation, when they call their comm center on the radio, they're going to say plainclothes officer is going to be responding in such and such a vehicle wearing such and such clothing. They're going to say that. So, yes, that's, yeah. You really do need to announce yourself.
0: Welcome to the Viola's vault. And certainly there is a lot of pressure right now. A lot of outcry and being spoken. Roe versus Wade. Kind of a connection here. And we save this question for the final couple of minutes, Paul. It says, I am a pastor of a growing congregation in Missouri. And my church council feels we should have armed security. What are you success? And this was sent in by Pastor Jim in Missouri listening to us this morning.
1: Good morning, Pastor, and, and thank you for writing in. As uh, As your timing is impeccable, unfortunately. Um, but it's a very valuable question, and we have just a little bit of time, so I'm going to answer your question quickly. But it, I, I offer a couple of things. One, pick up the book Securing the Sacred by a very dear friend of mine, Eric Conahy here. You can get it on Amazon. Every single thing that any uh, church administrator right now that's concerned about with respect to these protests and the threats that have been made to churches specifically, you're going to find the answers in that book. Again, Securing the Sacred by Eric here. It's on Amazon. Uh, one, make sure. I, first, I agree with you, Church Council. Two, you need to conduct a vulnerability assessment, um, and I can email you. You can email me, and I will send you exactly what that looks like. But that will identify with respect to where the vulnerabilities are from access control and procedures, how large the church is, etc., how to properly secure it. Make sure right now that you are very careful about securing packages and where packages are opened. Uh, I know that's a, a terrible thing to say, but what the kind of threats that are being presented right now, based on groups that are already, already going public with their intentions of going after churches, make sure, we are, it's more than foreseeable we're going to have churches bombed. So make sure that you have a package screening process in place. And three, you really need to look at closely access control and being able to mitigate a shooting expeditiously if, God forbid, it happens. I want to point this out as, we, as, as being that we are in the vault at this point. There's a gross disparity, ladies and gentlemen, between protests and riots. We have a constitutional right, and we celebrate our right to protest as we should. You do not have a right to riot. You riot, you break the law, you go to jail. If, in fact, you have administrators that are running that municipality that are worth their salt, they're gonna lock you up. Remember that. I don't care what you believe. You do not have the right to riot. Our country was divided enough. We did not need this. Division creates and begets violence. Unfortunately, churches are being threatened across the United States by the zealot groups that based on this draft that was leaked from the Supreme Court, there are blatant and overt threats to every church. There are groups right now that are saying that they're going to destroy the Eucharist. I can tell you, I wouldn't do that in my church when I'm there. Um, but I will tell you this specifically that to the pastors and the church administrators out there, you need to reexamine, because we are dealing with a prolific threat over the next 30 days. The court is going to rule on this. There is no question about that. We're going to see it towards the end of June before the, before the court adjourns, and we're going to have to deal with the aftermath. I'm not offering an opinion on this. I am stating a fact. Risk level is high, and, yes, I would certainly look at securing your church. We had a lot and far too much division in this country. I'm not even going to touch that right now, but I will tell you, We need to take preemptive measures to protect people, specifically in churches, for over the next month or two.
0: Right. He's Paul Violas. I'm Ray Horner, Safeguarding America. Great questions today. Keep them coming in to us. PV at Violas.com. R. Horner at RCRG. Thanks for listening to Safeguarding America.